is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We are glad you're here, especially if you are a guest with us today. If you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn it to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. Over the past few weeks during this Advent season, a season that's meant to be characterized by longing and hope and expectation for what God is going to do in our lives, we've been looking at the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke specifically the four nativity songs that we see surrounding the birth of Jesus. In these chapters, during this point in history, we see something so amazing happening, something uh, so uh, uh, grand and extraordinary. We see God working in such new and surprising ways that it elicits song from those closest to the events happening. Specifically, we see songs from Mary, from Zechariah, from the angels, and from Simeon. And over the past two weeks, we took a closer look at the songs of Mary and Zechariah. And this morning, we're going to be turning our attention to the song that is sung by the heavenly beings, by the angels who break through into this realm in order to sing a song of praise and celebration for what God is doing through this newborn child, Jesus. If you read the first few chapters of Luke, you'll notice that angels play a big role in the events happening. You see an angel appear to Zechariah to give him news that he's going to bear a son, John the Baptist, who's going to go before the Savior in order to get people ready to receive him. You see an angel appear to Mary, letting her know that she is highly favored and that she's been chosen to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And up to this point in Luke's account, we've seen angels playing their typical role of messenger. That's what angels are. They're messengers sent from God in order to deliver news. Yet in our passage this morning, we see these messengers slip into worship themselves. They move beyond simply delivering news and they lift their voices in praise and worship in song over what God's doing and how he's working at this point in history. One commentator I read this past week said, with a song in its heart, heaven sent Jesus to earth. With a song in its heart, heaven sent Jesus to earth. These angels were so filled with wonder and awe that they couldn't help but sing about what God was doing through the birth of Jesus. So with that in mind, you follow along as I read from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered 
at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. One of the best things about the Christmas season is getting the chance to experience the holidays through the eyes of a child. It's great to be around children during the Christmas season. Just take some time this season to listen in and hear how kids talk about the lights in the neighborhood or how they talk about the presents under the tree or how they sing Christmas music at the top of their lungs at the most inopportune times. It's it's beautiful thing to see the wonder on kids' faces during this time of year, to see the way that they experience this season of enchantment. In many ways, kids haven't yet grown cynical about life. They're still fairly hopeful. They haven't been disappointed much. They've got a capacity for awe and surprise. They're still sensitive to big things, to the idea that something can be bigger and grander than they can even understand. And this capacity for amazement, the ability to be enchanted, is refreshing and encouraging. Because if we stop and think about it, we'd have to admit that we live in a world that in many ways has lost any sense of wonder. W-O-N-D-E-R, wonder. We have given up our capacity to be awed. We are too old and too sophisticated to be surprised anymore. Our culture has become disenchanted with the idea that something bigger and grander than what we can understand can still be at play in this world. And along with this loss of enchantment has come the belief that God may be real. He may be out there, but he's not active in this world. He may be real, but he certainly is not intimately involved in my life. In fact, God's agency, the fact that he's active in our lives is offensive to a disenchanted world. It's growing more and more offensive to our culture at large. We've gotten to the point in our culture where it's still fine, maybe, if you believe in a creator, but he certainly is not active in the day-in, day-out aspects of your life. In our disenchanted world, we see people try to push God's active work out of the picture. Yet people are still haunted by the idea of God. They can't get him out of their minds. They're still intrigued by the sacred. We, we can't erase the notion of God from our hearts and minds, no matter how hard we try. And it reminds me of a conversation I read about in Steve Jobs' biography by Walter Isaacson a few years back. Steve Jobs is nearing the end of his life. He's dying of pancreatic cancer. And Isaacson is sitting with him in his back garden in California with Jobs. And, and one day, Steve Jobs starts talking about God as he reflects upon his life. And Jobs said this, sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50 maybe. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more and I find myself believing a bit more. Maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife, that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom you've accumulated, somehow it lives on. Then he paused for a second and said, yeah, But sometimes I think it's just like an on-off switch, click, and you're gone. And then he paused again and said, and that's why I don't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. It's a fascinating reflection from Jobs that shows us no matter how hard we try to push God out of the picture, no matter how disenchanted our world becomes, we're still haunted by God. 
We are haunted by the sacred. We still have a capacity in our hearts for wonder and awe. We still have a nagging sense, as Job says, that there is more than meets the eye. But this disenchantment isn't just characteristic of Silicon Valley or Hollywood. It's true of our neighborhoods, true of our city, our friends, and our coworkers. Doing demographic studies for this part of the city while planting this church, one stat stood out to me more than any other. And it's that 93% of people in our neighborhoods would say that they believe in God, but only 60% say that he is actively involved in this world and in their lives. And that number is likely going to decline year over year. God might be there, but he is not active. He doesn't care about me. He's not working on my behalf. And it makes me think of a quote from atheist Julian Barnes in his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, where he says, with the first words in chapter one, this is how the book starts. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And later, while reflecting on that line during an interview, Barnes says, I just found myself saying that when I was, I just found myself saying that when I was on some public stage and someone said, do you believe in God? And that was my instant response. And it was one that on reflection, I thought was true. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Look, now I understand that that quote can frustrate some of you. I mean, it doesn't make logical sense, right? Uh, It feels cheesy, but that quote describes so many of our friends and neighbors. They may not be able to articulate those words explicitly, but it's the feeling they have about their lives. And if you don't acknowledge that, you're simply not paying attention. You're You're not paying attention to what our neighbors' lives are telling us, and you're not paying attention to what the Bible says when it tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter three that God has set eternity in the human heart. It's in everybody's spiritual DNA to long after God to be haunted by his presence. But I don't think it's just our friends and neighbors who live as functional deists. Believing God exists, but isn't active in this world. Normally, if I'm honest, it's how I live most days. It's how I live most days. That that God's there, but he doesn't really care much about what's happening in my life. I mean, we're a part of the 60% that would claim that God is active in this world. Yet, if we're honest, we often functionally live as though that's not true. We live as deists. Just like our friends and neighbors, we've lost a sense of wonder and awe. We've given up on the idea that God is intimately involved in our lives. And this belief manifests itself in our lives in lots of different ways. It manifests itself in that we're prone to legalism. Me and you, we want to make sure the lines are very clearly drawn about what's right and what's wrong, and we want to make sure that we're on the right side. Our loss of capacity for wonder manifests itself in the fact that we work and work and work and don't ever stop. It manifests itself in our lack of comfort with mystery and having to intellectually know all the answers, which is impossible for finite creatures like you and me, but we still want it. It manifests itself in the way we don't pray very much. Let me ask you this question. A question that just resonated with me a few weeks ago when I heard it. If God answered every prayer you prayed this week, how would your life be different? If God answered every prayer that you prayed this past week, how would your life be different today? 
It's a question that shines a light on just how involved we think God is in our lives and in this world. We functionally live as deists where God exists, but we don't really believe he's active much in our lives. We see this in the way that we're so cynical, thinking that God can't really change anything about me. We see it in the way that we're doubtful, wondering if God really cares. We see it in the way that we're numb, not thinking that God could work in our lives at all. We functionally push God's active love and work in our lives out of the picture. And I think this explains why we rely so heavily on things we can control. Uh, On things other than God to make our lives better, more safe and more secure. It's why we look to politics to make our life better. It's why some of us go overkill on diet and exercise and image of body. It's why we shy away from taking risks in mission and in evangelism. It's why we keep such tight control of our finances and our family and our image. It's because we functionally come to believe that it's up to us, that God isn't really active in our lives. And in our passage this morning, we see God break in. We see that he is active in this world. He's active in our lives. And in verse 18, we see that all who heard of God's intervention in the lives of the shepherds, they wondered. They wondered. And I love that word. The people we read about in our passage still had the ability to be surprised by God, to be awed by his work, to wonder at what he might be doing. And the question for us this morning is, do we have any category or conception for God breaking in and working in our lives. Sometimes there are profound spiritual moments in your life. Times where you sense the transcendence of God in a special way, where you feel God's presence and love in real tangible ways. Maybe you can remember the last time you felt like that. Felt that God was near and he was caring for you and showing you his goodness. Maybe it was through a special time with family. Maybe for you, it was a time of devotion and prayer in a beautiful place. Maybe for you, it was over a meal that you just didn't want to end with friends. And I like to think of these experiences that we have as thin places. They're thin places, an experience where the separation between heaven and earth seems to be very thin. You might call them sacred places or experiences, places of deep joy and peace where the veil between heaven and earth is thin, so to speak. Well, in Luke 2, we see that that veil rips completely open. We see that God breaks in. We see that the creator is still active in his creation and with his creatures. We're reminded that we live in an enchanted world. We live in an enchanted world where God is still at work. And as we think about how God breaks in, it should cause us to wonder, along with the original audience that wondered. The definition of wonder is this, a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. And I think it'd be good to simply wonder for a few minutes together as we move through this passage. First, we should wonder at the recipients of God's intervention. In verse 8, we see that in the region of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. These shepherds were likely working in shifts, sleeping in turns so that they could protect their sheep from wild animals and thieves. And as these shepherds are minding their own business, they're just working like normal, watching their flock like any other night. 
We see in verse 9 that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And you got to imagine the first thought these shepherds had was, this cannot be good. This can't be good. And it says they were filled with fear. The appearance of an angel isn't normal. Certainly not expected. It came out of nowhere to these shepherds. So the angel calms the shepherds' fears saying, fear not, I've come with good news. I've come with joyful news for all people, even you. The recipients of this divine intervention should cause us to wonder because shepherds, you might know, were not important. They weren't significant. In fact, they were a despised class in many ways. They were lowly. They weren't considered trustworthy. They weren't even allowed to give testimony in the court of law at that time in that day. This kind of thing doesn't happen to shepherds. God breaking in to find shepherds should cause us to wonder. By appearing to shepherds, we're clued into the fact that this baby king is going to be different. He's not going to come and rule by force and glory. He's going to come and he's going to rule with gentle care and humility. In the midst of that cynical world, the first century world was just as, if not more cynical than our own. In the midst of that cynical world, the shepherds were a group of people who were willing to be awed. They were able to be surprised. They were open to God's intervention. In comparison, the scribes, they were likely too jaded. The rulers of the day were too sophisticated, too powerful. The Romans and the pagans, they were too dismissive of spirituality in this sense. But the shepherds, they had the capacity to believe. They had the capacity to wonder. And it's a truism we find in our world even today that the smart, the influential, the powerful, the wealthy, they're oftentimes not able to wonder. Incapable of being awed and believing in the supernatural because they're so reliant on themselves, because they have it all together. We should also wonder as we look at this passage at the sign the angel gave the shepherds. Look at verse 12, where the angels say, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, here is, we see this and think, of course, a baby in a manger. What else would these shepherds have expected? It's how the story goes, right? Of course, they should be looking for a baby in a manger. But we always have to remember that Luke is sharing a firsthand account. These shepherds were living the experience in real time. You've got to place yourself in their shoes. When they heard of a Savior, when they heard of news of Christ the Lord, the Messiah, it would have been hard for them to wrap their minds around a baby in a manger. The angel tells this group of nobodies that they're going to find the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the world, not in a castle, not in an important city of influence or political power, not born to a rich and wealthy family. Instead, they'll find him born to parents from a humble background, in a backwater town, in a manger. Now, just let that sink in for a minute. God would be born to a humble woman and laid in a feeding trough. God in a feeding trough. That's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. It should cause a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration. So beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, inexplicable that it should cause us to wonder. Lastly, we should also wonder at the message these shepherds received. They get a birth announcement before birth announcements were cool to send out. 
We see the message of good news and great joy in verse 11, where the angels share the announcement with the shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, there's lots that could be said about this verse, but I want you to notice how personal this was for the shepherds. This baby, the Christ, it says, was being born to them. The shepherds, and the wording here is a bit strange. It's not how we normally talk about the birth of a child. If you have a baby, it's born to you, not me. It's your child, not mine. But this baby being born to Joseph and Mary, it was a baby for the life of the world. A baby for anyone who would receive him. And this should really cause us to wonder at Mary's calling. At Mary's calling. That she had to share this baby in such a profound way to share her boy with the entire world. And she would learn through her life more and more what that meant. It was such good news that we see in verse 13 that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, it says, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. These angels who had worshiped Jesus in the heavenly realms for all eternity now find themselves on a hillside outside of Bethlehem because the one that they had worshiped in splendor and glory and majesty for all eternity past is now breaking into this earthly realm to take on flesh and blood, to be born in humility and to give up his majesty. The angels themselves were full of wonder and awe at what God was doing, and it caused them to rejoice with song in verse 14, singing of God's glory and the peace that was coming through this baby boy. Look, there's lots of causes to wonder and awe in our passage this morning. It's a passage that reminds us we live in an enchanted world, a world where God is right now as we speak present and active, where he still intimately works in our lives. And I wonder if you have any category for God breaking in and working in your life this morning. Do you have hope that God is active in your life with the ability to bring change and renewal and life and wholeness to you? Does God care about your relationships? Does he care about your temptations? Does he care about your struggles and your fears and your doubts and your sicknesses? This Advent season, our hearts need to be open to awe and wonder. God is one who comes to visit those who are willing to wonder and stand in awe of what he promises to do. And so a question for us this morning is how can we cultivate this wonder and awe over what God is doing and promises to do in our lives? How can we open ourselves to God's intimate work in our lives? Well, if we believe that God is still active and present working in our lives, how do we experience him today? That's the question. Chances are he is not going to break in to your life like he does with the shepherds in Luke chapter two. If he does, I want to hear about it. We need to have a conversation, but he's still just as active, just as present working for your good, begging you to hear and believe good news, inviting you to worship him for his goodness, encouraging you to bring your needs and your requests to him. So how do we experience God today? How do we cultivate wonder and awe in our lives? Well, it's not dramatic, and it's not as exciting as you might hope what I'm about to say. But we can experience God and cultivate wonder and awe in our lives 
as we engage in historic Christian practices. As we engage in historic Christian practices, as we engage the normal means of grace that God has given you and me so that we might experience his love and forgiveness and provision. It's through the normal means of grace that God breaks into our lives, so to speak, to encourage, to challenge, to bless. And as we engage the practices of the church that, have hit, that, that, that the church has historically relied upon throughout the ages, we actually begin to experience God in our lives. As we engage in worship, this is what the means of grace are. Worship, Bible reading, prayer, community with other believers, the sacraments on a weekly basis, we actually get an opportunity to experience God breaking into our lives today. It's through these normal means of grace that God tunes our spiritual ears and eyes to see him at work in our lives in this world. These means of grace like prayer and scripture reading and worship, they train us to notice God in our everyday life, to appreciate him, to lean more into his work. I love how John Calvin would encourage people who came to him asking how they could experience more of God and learn to pray. And he would point them to the simple means of grace. In fact, he would encourage them to simply pray the Psalms. If you want to experience more of God and you knocked on John Calvin's door, he would say, pray the Psalms morning and evening. Pray the Psalms morning and evening. In other words, he would encourage people by telling them they don't have to make this up. You don't have to make this up. If you want to experience God, if you want to engage him, pray the Psalms, pray the Lord's Prayer thoughtfully. The words are already there and they are amazing words. They can hit you in any situation that you're experiencing and all we've got to do is live into them. We don't have to make anything up. Sometimes I wonder if we don't make it harder than it needs to be to experience God. Thinking that we've got to manufacture emotion in order to experience thin places in our lives. We've got to put ourselves in the perfect positions around the right people. I mean, where are we in the American evangelical church that we think praying the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer isn't spiritual enough? Where we think that that's not good enough? Where are we when we've given up on the idea that consistent, simple worship week in, week out actually shapes and forms us over time? Where are we when we think that we can follow Jesus in this fallen world wrecked by sin without deep community and encouragement with one another. It's kind of crazy. We can experience God's work in our lives. He invites us to be shaped and formed by Him through the normal means of grace. The normal means of grace are intended to remind us that God is still at work in our lives in profound ways. And as the shepherds went and found everything, just as the angel had told them, as they tangibly experienced God's presence and work, it provoked deep wonder and awe in their lives. They knew that God was present, that he loved him, and that he was keeping his promises in surprising and wonderful ways. And I love how Daniel Darling, uh, in an article I read this past week from Christianity Today, reflects on this scene when he says this. The Lamb of God would first be held and handled by those who knew how to appreciate and care for a lamb. And yet more than anybody, these shepherds knew the ultimate fate of each lamb for which they cared. 
and we actually get a chance to tangibly experience God's presence and work this morning as we come to this table, as we celebrate communion with one another, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, it should provoke wonder and awe in our hearts and in our souls. This is a way that God wants to stir up wonder and adoration in our hearts to celebrate at this table. We come and remind ourselves that God is still active. He still cares about you, that he wants to be involved in your life, that he loves you, and he invites you to come and dine with him. 